Okay, Garrett, you can hear me through the headphones? Loud and clear. So, you just want me to run through these readings here? Um, yeah, I think so. I'm not entirely sure yet. I'm just kind of trying out a few things. All right, okay. Well, I mean, I can improvise. Great. Um, that's exactly the spirit of the book. It's an experiment in fiction. So, off you go. And now, on tonight's book show, Regan Hutchins presents a major documentary on the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy by Lawrence Stern. Uh, wait, uh, don't, don't say that. That's not right. It's in the script. Yeah, I know. I was trying it out, but it doesn't really work. I haven't read the book. Well, I have, but I haven't finished it. Okay. What do you want me to say? Maybe just introduce yourself. I'm Garrett Lombard. I work as an actor. Uh, you may have seen me on television programs like Pure Mule or Love's the Drug. Okay, okay, uh, okay. So, tonight's book show. Oh. Uh, what about something like Irish-born writer Lawrence Stern? Have you got a pen? Or Clonmel-born writer Lawrence Stern died 250 years ago. Regan Hutchins asks if Tristram Shandy is a neglected classic and wonders if he'll ever finish reading it. Sounds a bit clunky, to be honest. Okay, just read the opening lines of Tristram Shandy. I wish either my father or my mother, or indeed both of them, as they were in duty both equally bound to it, had minded what they were about when they begot me. Had they duly considered how much depended upon what they were then doing. And that's how the story begins. Tristram Shandy's parents are in the act of begetting him. It's a Sunday night, and everything in the Shandy household runs like clockwork. Each week, Walter Shandy winds up the clocks at Shandy Hall. When that's done, he visits his wife. But on this night, the night Tristram is conceived, Mr Shandy has forgotten all about the clock. Pray, my dear, quote my mother, have you not forgot to wind up the clock? Good God, cried my father, making an exclamation, but taking care to moderate his voice at the same time. Did ever woman, since the creation of the world, interrupt a man with such a silly question? This is my copy of Tristram Shandy. I've started it about three times and I've never finished it. The spine here is cracked, there's thumb marks, dog ears, and it looks like a much treasured book. In a way it is, because even if I've never finished it and it's always defeated me, Stern's writing is bizarrely fresh and entertaining, even exciting. I think the first time I read it, I find it a bit of a pain in the neck. Too clever for its own good, a little bit too abstruse and obtuse, but... Dr. Rebecca Barr, lecturer at NUI Galway. On rereading, actually, it's a wonderful book. It's playful, irreverent. The book is supposed to be an autobiography of Tristram Shandy. And it's supposed to go from his birth and take you up to the moment where he's writing in the present tense. But the problem is it can't do that. It keeps falling out of rhythm with his life. So it goes back to the moment of his conception. But it's not about Tristram in a very direct sense. Uh, what have you got there? It's an old window. It's in the prop list. Ah, uh, yeah, that's right. We don't need it just yet, though, because Rebecca's actually going to tell us a little bit about the setting of Tristram Shandy before we use the window. OK, well, I'll, uh, I'll just leave it here till we're ready. Yeah, watch your back. Mm. 
So the setting is 18th century England around Shandy Hall, where Walter Shandy is trying to build his little domestic empire. Walter is hanging about reading books and composing his Tristrapedia, which is the guide to education that he's going to give his son. And Walter is a fairly hands-off father. And so he's trying to distill all his learning, which is fairly arcane, um, into this book that will educate his son without him ever having to bother to talk to his actual son. The mother is kind of hanging out, not doing very much, being a mother. And poor old Tristram is, is left in the hands of these women for most of his childhood until the terrible point where he's accidentally circumcised by a falling window sash. So... At that point, I think Tristram's father panics that not merely has he emasculated his son by leaving him with these women all the time, but his son has literally had his manhood compromised physically by this thing falling on his tiny... Am I allowed to say this? Garrett, that window. Yep, got it here. He has this kind of very embarrassing injury to his manhood and it's always left vague as to how crucial or impairing his injury is, whether, you know, it's caused him irreparable damage or if it's just a kind of superficial trimming. This tragicomic incident is something that's one of the defining episodes of the novel. The book opens with Tristram's conception, but it isn't until the fourth volume that he actually gets to telling us about his birth. This meandering style is both part of the frustration of the book, but also its charm, and I know that sounds weird. There are long chapters parodying philosophy, theology, law, medicine, and they all get in the way of Tristram's life story. You want to shout, for God's sake, get on with it. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hugely influenced by Tristram Shandy, having read almost none of it. I mean, I've dipped in and out and I've read chunks. Julian Goff, writer of books for adults and children and former headman of the band Toasted Heretic. So this is interesting because I've been saying for years it's one of my favourite books and I've not finished it either. So what is it about Tristram Shandy then that just has this effect? I think Tristram Shandy has become this conceptual piece of art that's more powerful than the actual book itself. I think the idea of Tristram Shandy now is incredibly fruitful in a way that the actual nine volumes making the same jokes again and again uh, has, has sort of ceased to be. I think nobody's read Tristram Shandy. Another reason why I wanted to talk to you, because Stern, like you, is a Tipperary man. Lawrence Stern was born in Clonmel in, in County Tipperary and not ridiculously far away from where my parents were born. Like Lawrence Stern had the same dilemma that I did in some ways in that he was treated as sort of English in Ireland and treated as sort of Irish in England and you were, in, you were kind of nowhere. Uh, and I had the same problem because I was born in London to Tipperary parents and I came back to Tipperary when I was seven and people assume you're vaguely Irish in England they assume you're vaguely English in Ireland and, and that messes you up in a way that's very good for you creatively because you've got this kind of wound that you want to heal. In many ways, it's a linguistic wound. Your voice is heard as other everywhere you go. In Tristram Shandy, I think one of the things he's doing is um, playing around with the fact that language can't represent you properly. You're much more conscious of that, I think. If you were born in one place and grew up somewhere else, if you're between two cultures, between two slightly different linguistic zones... And he's also obsessed with other people's books. So you have chunks of Jonathan Swift, Alexander Pope, 
And there's one book by Robert Burton called The Anatomy of a Melancholy, which he brings huge sections of it into his own book. One of the reasons you can't read Tristram Shandy now the way people read him then is because Tristram Shandy is a book about other books, but they're books we don't read anymore. Now, The Anatomy of Melancholy was a huge bestseller in its day. It's a very serious book about death and melancholy. And Lawrence Stern was highly philosophically opposed to that approach to life and that approach to human existence. So his method of engaging with Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy was to take pieces of it and weave them into his own book unchanged. He hasn't changed any words, but he's completely changed their meaning by having this idiot, Tristram Shandy, use these words to talk about his uncle and uh, and his mum in this absurd, irritating shaggy dog story. An introduction to some of the characters in Tristram Shandy, beginning with Tristram himself. Here's Dr. Rebecca Barr, NUI Galway. Tristram is very likeable. He's gentle, he's got a lovely whimsical sense of humour. A kind of soft, sentimental man. He's more of a kind of an accidental hero. And he's very conspiratorial with the reader. He invites you in and asks you to be complicit while he's telling you the story that mocks himself and mocks everyone else, including the reader too. Was I, Tristram Shandy, gentleman, brought forth into this scurvy and disastrous world of ours? I wish I had been born in the moon or in any of the planets, except Jupiter or Saturn, because I could never bear cold weather, for it could not have fared worse with me in any of them than it has in this vile, dirty planet of ours. In the book we have a household. The head of the household is Walter Shandy, Tristram's father. He's not a lot of fun. Walter is a boring man, a pedant, an obsessive. Walter is the kind of original mansplainer. He knows best because he's read a book about it. Rational, modern living. He's also a man who thinks that women don't know what's best for them. So he thinks that he should be in charge of his wife's childbirth and labour. So he overrules her and arranges for a man midwife, Dr Slop, as he's called, to come and attend her during her childbirth. Man midwives were new um, phenomena in the 18th century. And of course, Dr Slop is an idiot. Um, He has no practical knowledge of women's bodies in a proper sense. And the birth is a botched operation. Um, It injures poor old Tristram on the way out and causes the mother distress also. But Walter never really understands how obnoxious he is to other people because he's so obsessed with his own opinions and the books he's read. He never really understands that he's actually in the wrong or that somebody else might know better than him. But he's a good brother. And his one redeeming feature, I think, is that he, he does love his brother Toby an awful lot with a kind of real fraternal tenderness. And now we make a short digression of our own. Hey, Jim, you know, listen, I better get off the phone. I'm on this radio gig. It's this documentary about Tristram Shandy. It's grand, no, it's a handy number. I'm not entirely sure if your man gets it. He's making a bit of a mountain out of a molehill of it, to be honest. Also, he hasn't read the book. Garrett. Look, I, I have to go. All right, good luck, good luck. See you. Bye, bye, bye. Garrett, can I get you back in studio? Yeah, sorry, uh, just getting some water here. <coughs> Throat's a bit dry. 
Tristram Shandy is interested in the act of writing itself and how trying to write a life as it's being lived is an impossible task. That the writer, Tristram, can never keep up with his own living self. He's always desperately trying to keep pace with his own body as it hurtles towards death. And we know that both Tristram and Stern are sickly and are, are battling with their own mortality in many ways. And the book and the writing of the book becomes a means of trying to combat that, of trying to put down on paper what is happening now, um, the experience of living, the feelings, the, the kind of sensations of, of being a living body. But the problem is that it's inherently digressive because living is not a straight line. If a gentleman did tell you his life and opinions successfully in much shorter span of time, it'd be a much less successful book. <laughs> it's deliberately failing to tell a story again and again and again. And he's a huge influence on writers like Flann O'Brien, I think. Flann O'Brien was also caught between languages. You know, he had a Gaelgore father who was one of those very ideological Irish speakers uh, who wouldn't let his son you know, speak English or learn English. And then poor old Flan had to learn English and was, again, caught between worlds. Was like, what am I? Am I an Irish speaker or an English speaker? Am I, what am I? And had to solve that problem. And Tristram Shandy gave him a, a guide to doing that. And you can see in Flan O'Brien where he's taking chunks of Sweeney in the trees and he's taking chunks of Irish literature and, and, and quoting them almost intact sometimes. And because of the kind of story he's telling, they become deeply absurd and they, all their seriousness evaporates without really having to change anything because he's looking at them from a different angle. He's looking at them from a Shandian angle or you know, the same angle that Lawrence Stern looked at, The Anatomy of Melancholy or works like that. My copy of Tristram Shandy is over 700 pages. It has notes two introductions, and now it has multicoloured post-its dividing the nine volumes. I am getting into it, and one character shines among all the sermons, the texts in Latin and the philosophical bits, and from the very start, he's a joy to read. He's... <coughs> I'll take care of that, if you don't mind. A further introduction to some of the characters in Tristram Shandy, Uncle Toby with Dr Aoife Brannock. Uncle Toby is really the heart of the book and he's such a complex but really endearing character. He's like an innocent abroad really, at times he can be quite childlike. He's Captain Shandy, so he's a military man and he had spent time on the continent uh, in Flanders and in various battles and he spends most of his time telling us all about his experiences on the battlefield. So he comes from a military background, but he's so sweet and loving of the universe almost that he refuses to kill a fly. He captures it and then releases it out into the air. He's so respectful of everybody and everything and trying to understand their place in the world and so very tender at times. Go, poor devil, get thee gone. Why should I hurt thee? This world surely is wide enough to hold both thee and me. He has a very special friend, Corporal Trim, who served with him, and their relationship is quite unusual. They have a really sweet and touching relationship. They're both best friends, master and servant. They're almost like brothers. Um, there seems to be an age disparity. There's certainly disparity of background and education. But at heart, 
they are the best of friends and they share these really sweet moments where Trim would be telling a story, tears would fall down his face and Captain Shandy, Toby, will reach out and hold him briefly and then they pause and then begin to speak again and it's really very sweet. It's, it's such a bromance, it's a beautiful thing. What's wonderful about this book is that there is an array of gentle forms of masculinity who refuse to take themselves seriously, who play with each other, who engage in all forms of gentle, caregiving, weeping types of friendship and who actually are deeply interested in the happiness of others. I hope this is just making sense. I mean, I had to leave so much out and it's a little bit obscure and I'm just not sure if I can do it justice in half an hour. Oh, listen, you're grand. It's going well. You've more or less got it. I mean, you've good speakers. you got me. Look, I wouldn't worry too much about it. You think? Well, I'd probably do it a bit differently, but, you know, the next bit is interesting. You're being too hard on yourself. Snap out of it. Come on. Thanks, Garrett. No worries, man. It's a novel that's full of male body parts. Dr. Rebecca Barr on what Tristram Shandy is really all about. And they're all comically broken or compromised or injured. So we have broken noses. We have a whole chapter about noses and their size and what it means for manhood um, and what it might mean about the person if their nose is too big or too small. And it's quite clear the way in which noses are described that he's kind of making a kind of scientific study of nose sizes and proportions and dimensions. He's being much more rude than he can actually say directly. Tristram goes to lengths to explain that he is talking about a nose and the reader must not think this is anything else whatsoever. Of course. And if anyone accuses him of being smutty or bawdy or rude, what he can do is it turn the laugh back on them, that actually he hasn't said anything rude about male body parts and it must purely be in the mind of the reader. So is this next reading about noses or isn't it? Well, Lauren Stern says it is. Noses. Okay. For by the word nose, throughout all this long chapter of noses, and in every other part of my work where the word nose occurs, I declare by that word I mean a nose, and nothing more or less. Yeah, right. I love the bawdiness in Tristram Shandy. The scene where he's accidentally circumcised because he has to pee out a window and uh, the window blind falls down. I have it very vividly in my head. And in my own novel, Jude in Ireland, Jude Level 1, I have the, the Tipperary orphan have an accident where they have to graft tissue from the only part of his body that is undamaged in an explosion onto his nose. Now, Tristram Shandy is obsessed with the length of noses. So uh, in my book, my Tipperary orphan ends up with an erectile nose, which is quite likely my unconscious tribute to Tristram Shandy. When Uncle Toby is on the European campaign, um, he's at the siege of Namur and unfortunately is struck by a cannonball in the groin. And he is so evasive about this injury that the only way he can actually progress beyond his sickbed 
is to start recreating the site of the injury. Um, so he cannot seem to process it without externalising it in a set of earthworks in his back garden. And Stern doesn't really give us much indication about the extent of the damage, but there's one character called the Widow Wadman, who's a neighbour of Uncle Toby's. She has a bit of a soft spot for him, but she needs to get to the, well, to the groin of the matter, doesn't she? Yes, the poor Widow Wadman really needs to understand the nature of Toby's injury, um, particularly because he professes his love to her and offers to marry her. And she says, where were you hit? Expecting him to point at his body. And he proceeds to go and get the map and point out where in the siege place that he was hit on the map in the geography. But she attempts to, uh, you know, overcome the siege and she tries to get into the, into the breaches of Uncle Toby. Yeah, she is constantly besieging Toby. It's one of the things that's quite amusing about it is it's a constant reenactment of sieges. And it's a great collapse of expectation. As a reader, you're like, oh, I've been waiting all this time and I still don't know exactly where he was hit and the precise nature of the damage. So I'm just at the sixth volume and uh, just after Toby declares his love for Widow Wadman, page 423 is blank. And Stern says, fetch a pen, paint your own picture of the widow. He's not even going to tell you what she looks like. To conceive this right, call for pen and ink. Here's paper ready for your hand. Sit down, sir, paint her to your own mind, as like your mistress as you can, as unlike your wife as your conscience will let you. Tis all one to me. Well, through the magic of radio, I've actually got a pen in my hand, and um, even better, it's a pen that was sent to me by the great cartoonist Ronald Searle six months before he died. My name's Martin Rose, and I'm a political cartoonist for The Guardian. Twenty-two years ago, I produced a comic book version of Tristram Shandy. So I am now going to draw... The Widow Wadman. I'm not going to describe it to you because that's the beauty of cartoons on the radio. So I'm going to start doing it now. It won't take very long. Okay? There you go. I mean, that's, I think that's just one of the most extraordinary things I've ever drawn. I really do. Well, Martin, I'm a great fan of your work in The Guardian, so I'll just take your word for Fantastic. it. Fantastic. <laughs> but what was it that attracted the skills of a cartoonist to Tristram Shandy? If you need to convert it into anything, actually, a graphic novel, a comic book is perfect, because comic books are about linear narrative, and Tristram Shandy is about exactly the opposite of linear narrative. So I could, in trying to do a graphic novel version of a novel which is about the impossibility of writing a novel. I could produce a comic book about the impossibility of producing a comic book about a novel which is about the impossibility of writing a novel. And so you could play with the form, knock it about, walk out of the uh, narration, dismantle the talks bubbles and saw them in half and things like that. So as I like to think of myself as a, as a kind of professional iconoclast, I thought it was perfect. And how did you draw Tristram? Because uh, I don't really have a great physical sense of the guy. Well, because I had to make it visual, one of the things I did was to turn Tristram himself into his own kind of ideogram. So there he is with a tricorn hat, and he's thin, and he's gaunt, and he has no nose, and he has this constantly open mouth, because he talks all the time. He never, ever stops talking. 
and he is in fact a T, a T for Tristram. And if I'm not mistaken, Tristram Shandy could be a little bit like an 18th century cartoon. Well, on different levels, it is first of all an extremely visual book, not just in the way he uses typographical conceits, marbled pages, black pages, blank pages... But the other thing about it is it goes on and on and on and on and on, that they tell these shaggy dog stories which just carry on forever. And in a way, it's a bit like a cartoon strip in a newspaper. There is no reason for it to ever finish, except when the cartoonist or the reader dies. And in fact, Tristram Shandy more or less finished when Stern died. And it could go on forever. And you rather wish it would, because the novel is is like an amiable drunk in a bar. You get in the corner with him thinking, oh my God, what's this going to be like? And he starts telling you stories and they go on and they go on lengthy digressions and they come back to the point and it just carries on forever, actually. Now, actor Steve Coogan on playing Tristram Shandy in Michael Winterbottom's film Cock and Bull. Uh, Actually, you can scratch that bit out. Why? I was looking forward to hearing him. Well, I never got a reply to my email... Have you seen the film? It was a long time ago. It was about a film crew attempting to make a movie of the novel, but not really managing to. Yeah, that's the one. But anyway, let's move on. I'm on page five here, is that right? Give it to me. Finally, our contributors answered the question, should Regan finish Tristram Shandy? The book doesn't really finish itself. And actually, not having finished the book puts you in the same category as most 18th century readers who wouldn't have read the whole book start to finish. So you're in good company. I think you should start at the end and read it backwards, and it'll be just as enjoyable. And of course, if you can't, you can always cheat with my comic book version, published by Self Made Hero. I think I'll probably be dipping into it for the rest of my life. At some point, I may have accidentally read all of it, but I won't even know. Okay. Um, excellent. That's it. I've read Tristram Shandy, you know. Really? Yes. And I think you're making a bit of a big deal over nothing. It's just a book. Well, <laughs> it's a bit more complex than that. It's just a book. A complex book. <clears throat> Still only a book. All right, Gareth. I'll, uh, I'll see you out. All right, thanks very much. Um, you know, the great thing about Tristram Shandy, and if I was going to make a documentary... About it's just it, through here. I mean, you've got the right idea, don't get me wrong, but like, what you're missing is the fact that... It's through these doors. ...utterly revolutionary for, for his time. I mean, he was taking risks that other people just hadn't taken. And so, if you just press the button it, there, they'll see you out. Uh, right, well, okay. Um...